Well, this morning we're going to find ourselves eventually here in a few minutes in Isaiah chapter 6, so I'll let you start looking for that, and I will meet you there uh, in just a few minutes in Isaiah um, chapter 6. You know, one of the most fascinating things about the Bible is the significant number of prophecies that have been made, especially in the Old Testament, and have been fulfilled as we come to the New Testament. Many and perhaps the majority of those Old Testament prophecies revolve around the Jewish Messiah, the one that you and I know as Jesus Christ. There are over 200 prophecies related to the first coming of Jesus in the Old Testament, and every single one of them were fulfilled as he came. There are an additional 200-plus prophecies related to his second coming in the kingdom when he will be made king over an earthly kingdom that will set all things right. And the neat thing with that is the fact that if he was able to fulfill 200 prophecies when he came the first time, we have great assurance that the prophecies related to his return are going to be fulfilled as well. Fulfilled prophecies in Scripture stand as a testimony of the reliability of the Bible. It stands as a testimony to the fact that the Bible is indeed the inspired Word of God, that He is the one who worked in the hearts and the minds of men over 1,600 years in order to deliver to us exactly what He desires us to know about Himself about the relationship that he has made available to us through Jesus Christ, and then the life that he calls us to live if we choose to be one of his followers. Now, out of all 39 books of the Old Testament, there is not a book in the Old Testament that gives us a clearer picture of Jesus Christ than the book of Isaiah. It's considered the greatest Old Testament prophetic book by the Jews themselves. In fact, it's the most quoted prophetic book of the New Testament. There are 75 references of Isaiah made in the New Testament. The only book that is referred to more often than the book of Isaiah in the New Testament is the book of Psalms with 95 different references. The book of Isaiah is sometimes referred to as the fifth gospel, also as the gospel of the Old, in the Old Testament. And it's because of these beautiful portraits of Jesus Christ that you find throughout the book of Isaiah. In fact, everything that you need to know about who Jesus Christ is and everything that you need to know about what Jesus Christ accomplished for us is found in Isaiah. If you just had these different passages, you could know Jesus. And so over the next few weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Isaiah in this Advent series entitled Portraits of Jesus and Isaiah. Now, that tells you exactly what the series is. I never said I was creative in making titles. But that's what the series is going to be. It's going to be looking at four of these dynamic portraits of Jesus that are found for us in the book of Isaiah. We're going to start this morning with the fact that Jesus is Emmanuel, which is God with us. And then Jesus, next week we're going to see Jesus as a suffering Messiah who died for us. Then we're going to go to Jesus. He is himself the good news of salvation. 
And then on um, Christmas Eve, on the 24th, we'll be seeing Jesus as the Supreme King. And so we're going to start this morning by getting a little better acquainted with this prophet, with Isaiah, and who he was and how he fits into the Old Testament. Isaiah lived and did his ministry around the year 740 B.C. That's when he started. He continued his ministry at least until 680 B.C., maybe beyond, which means he had a ministry that spanned over 60 years in the history of Judah. Israel had existed as this united kingdom under the reigns of King Saul and then King David and then King Solomon. But then Solomon's son, Rehoboam, through some miscalculations, created a dynamic civil war in which the country was fractured into two independent kingdoms. The northern kingdom retained the name Israel. The southern kingdom became known as Judah. And Judah had Jerusalem as its capital. Now, Israel was ruled by a series of kings who were all ungodly worshipers of pagan gods. And so as a nation, the nation of Israel just consistently drifted further and further away from God until finally God brings a judgment upon them from a kingdom known as the Assyrians. The southern kingdom of Judah had a mixed bag of kings. Some of them were godly followers of Jehovah God, and some of them were ungodly followers of pagan gods. And so their spiritual experience is more of a spiritual yo-yo up and down, depending on which king was reigning at any particular time. Isaiah lived approximately 200 years after the Civil War. He lived in the southern kingdom of Judah, and he spent most of his life living in the capital city of Jerusalem. And his life would have reflected that yo-yo experience because he would have ministered under five different kings. One year under King Uzziah, one of the most godly kings in Judah's history. Then 16 years under his son Jotham, and he was a godly king. Then comes Ahaz. He's the king we're going to meet this morning here in chapter six or chapter 7. rather. He was a very ungodly king. Then comes Hezekiah a godly king, and then finally Manasseh, perhaps the most ungodly king in the history of Judah. This is not something that's given to us in Scripture, but Jewish tradition holds that Manasseh has Isaiah martyred by sawing him in two. Isaiah's dramatic call to ministry is recorded in a well-known section of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 6 and verses 1 through 8. And we start in verse 1, and it says that in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord, as Isaiah is relating this, I saw the Lord high and exalted, seated on a throne, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, and with two they were flying. And they were calling to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. Woe to me, I cried. I am ruined, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. And my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. And then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. 
And with it, he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, and your guilt is taken away, and your sin has been atoned for. And then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. And with this vision, God commissions Isaiah as his prophet to the nation of Judah. And so our first portrait of Jesus comes just one chapter later in Isaiah chapter 7. And it's where we're introduced to Jesus as Emmanuel, God with us. Now this chapter, even though it's just the next chapter, it actually takes place 20 years into Isaiah's ministry. During that 20 years, the spiritual health of Judah has continuously declined. And especially as Ahaz takes the throne. So I'd like to let John MacArthur set the context. And he writes this about uh, the scene in Isaiah 7 that we're about to read. He says, The scene in Isaiah 7 is the reign of King Ahaz in Judah. Though the grandson of the great Uzziah, he was a wicked king. He filled Jerusalem with idols, reinstated the worship of Moloch, and burned his own son as a sacrifice to this god. Rezin, king of Syria, and Pekah, the king of Israel, decided to remove Ahaz and replace him with a king that would do their bidding. In the face of such a threat to the people of Judah and to the royal line of David, Ahaz, instead of turning to God for help, sought the help of the evil king of the Assyrians. He even plundered the temple of most of its gold and silver to send to their king, Tilgapilzah. Isaiah came to Ahaz and reported that God would deliver the people from the two enemy kings. And when Ahaz refused to listen, Isaiah responds with this remarkable prophecy. And so with that background, let's look at um, Isaiah 7 in verse 10. It says, Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask the Lord your God for a sign, whether in the deepest depths or in the highest heights. But Ahaz said, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Then Isaiah said, Hear now, you house of David. Is it not enough to try the patience of humans? Will you try the patience of my God also? Ahaz refuses to accept the sign from the Lord. God says, I will deliver you from these two kings. I will deliver the nation of Judah from this threat. And so that you know that I will fulfill this promise, just ask for any sign you want, anything. So anything you want to see in the heavens, anything you want to see on earth, and I will do that sign so that you know you do not need to trust in this human deliverer, the Assyrians, I myself, your God, will deliver you. So ask for the sign so that you can have this assurance. And Ahaz refuses. Ahaz has no intention of repenting. Ahaz has no intention of rejecting the idols that he has brought on and started to worship. Ahaz has no intention of repenting and giving his heart back to God. He hides behind a facade of religious humility and says, I don't want to put my God to the test. But what he is saying is, I don't want my God. I don't want that God. I don't want his help. He just needs to leave me alone. I will take care of this. I have a plan. His rejection of God is firm. 
Despite Ahaz's rejection, though, God has determined that he is going to deliver his people from this threat. And so in verse 14, he says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. There is a short-term fulfillment of this prophecy. Apparently, Isaiah's first wife has died. And he is engaged to a young woman as a second wife. She has never been married, and so, as was the custom of this time, she is still a virgin. So God says, you know what? Shortly after Isaiah, you and this woman are married, she will conceive and you will have a son. And before that son is weaned, approximately the age of three, I will have delivered you from these two kings. And so therefore you will call him Emmanuel because this is a sign that I, the Lord, am still with his people. That's the short-term fulfillment of this prophecy. And in Jewish history, that's exactly what happens. God does miraculously deliver that, uh, the nation of Judah from these two foreign kings. But there is another, even more important fulfillment of this prophecy, and that's the incarnation, the coming of the Messiah, the birth of Jesus Christ. The fact that the eternal second person of the Trinity is going to take on humanity and then he will become the ultimate Savior not only of the nation of Israel but of the entire world. And in this prophecy, God reveals two things about the coming of Jesus Christ. He says he will be born of a virgin and he says... He is God who has come to dwell with humankind. You know, the incarnation is the foundational truth of who Jesus Christ is. The incarnation is the foundation of the Christian faith. As I was going through Bible college and we were studying different religions and different cults, some of whom claim to be Christian, we were always taught, you just need to ask one question, who's Jesus Christ? Their answer will tell you whether they are related to Orthodox Christianity or whether they are a heresy. The Apostle John makes this abundantly clear in 1 John chapter 4. In, that, in, the, in, cha- in verses 14 and 16 of uh, 1 John 4, John writes, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent His Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them and they are in God. Jesus Christ is God, John says. And if you're going to be in a right relationship with God through salvation and faith, then you will say Jesus Christ is God. He then earlier in that chapter said this about Jesus' humanity. He says, this is how you can recognize the Spirit of God. Every spirit that acknowledges that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, which is to say has taken on humanity, is from God. 
So in this chapter, he says both of these truths are foundational to who Jesus Christ is. Jesus Christ is eternal God, and Jesus Christ is fully man, fully human. And in the day we're living in, it is essential that we understand that there are certain foundational doctrines that we just don't move an inch from. And the incarnation of Jesus Christ and who Jesus Christ is is central belief, foundational. He is eternal God. He is fully human. And in a moment in time, he became the Savior of the world, the one way to God. And the church of Jesus Christ has to hang on to that truth with everything we got. Jesus Christ is eternally and fully God, and in a moment of time, he took on humanity, and he came to live on this earth to be our Savior. That is the definition of the incarnation. When we talk about the incarnation of Christ, that's what we're saying. He is the eternal and full God, and in a moment in time, he took on humanity and came to live on this earth to be our Savior. He is Emmanuel. No one paints a better picture of this than John. And so if you take your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 1. The Gospel of John, chapter 1. This whole chapter is all about the incarnation. John, chapter 1. John writes in the first three verses here that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning, and through Him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. Jesus Christ is eternal God and creator of this universe. He says, in the beginning was the word. You could paraphrase that this way. When the first act of creation was about to happen, Jesus Christ was already there. It's a declaration that Jesus is eternal. The Word was with God and was God. And here we have the mystery of the Trinity. The mystery of the Trinity. I have read so many different ways people try to explain the Trinity, and I just sit back and go, it is a mystery of God to be accepted by faith. I got nothing for you. Because there is nothing in the material creation that gives us anything that will help us understand One God who exists in three persons. There just isn't. It's a declaration of truth in Scripture that we are called to accept by faith. And it's right here. He was with God, so there's the fact that he is a separate person, and yet he is God. (laughs) The Trinity. One God existing in three distinct persons, and yet still one. Through him all things were made. Jesus Christ is the creator of this universe. My understanding of scripture is God the Father planned. And in Genesis when it said, and God spoke, that is the release of Jesus Christ into the cosmos and he is the agent who actually creates. He's the word. And we're told the Holy Spirit was involved in this as well, hovering over the waters. But Jesus Christ is the creator. Through him, all things were made. 
And then in a moment in time, Jesus took on humanity and lived on this earth. Look at verse 14. It says in verse 14 that the Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. In a moment in time, the Word became flesh. Jesus took on humanity. Jesus was born fully human, while at the same time remaining fully God. Some call Him the God-man. He is the only thing in creation that 100% plus 100% equals 100%. Fully God, fully human. God, Emmanuel, who has come to dwell with us. I love the phrase, he made his dwelling among us. This is where he indeed becomes Emmanuel or God with us. But the phrase carries a lot more weight than just simply he, he showed up. This is a phrase that talks about relationship. It's a phrase that talks about closeness. He didn't just come to be here. He came to connect. He came to connect. It's the idea that Jesus fully identified with us. And Jesus Christ lived this life as one of us, except without sin. Cool verse is Hebrews 2.11. It says that Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. I love that. Jesus is not ashamed to call us brothers and sisters. That's how closely he relates to us. He dwells with us. And we have seen his glory. John says we watched Jesus for three years and we came to this conclusion. To see Jesus is to see God. If you want to know what God is like, read the Gospels. Because to see Jesus Christ is to see God himself. He is the eternal creator. He, in a moment, took on humanity to live on this earth, and he's the one way to a right relationship with the Father. In verse 12, Yet to all who did receive him, John writes, to those who believe in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Our part is to believe that Jesus is the eternal Son of God who took on humanity, who went to the cross to die for our sins, who rose from the grave in victory over death, and that we've entrusted ourselves and our eternal destiny to Him as our Savior. And when we do that, Jesus says, I now am the the one through whom you come into a right relationship with my Father, and He declares that you are His son or His daughter. That is something... that's worth reflecting on sometime. God could have chosen to bring you into any relationship he wanted and still save you. Could have made you a slave. He just could have declared that you're, you're saved, I'll see you when you die. I mean, he could have done it any different way he wanted to, but God chose to make you his child because of what Jesus Christ has done. And so John lays out the incarnation that it is the eternal God and creator took on humanity, lived on this earth, and has made a way for you and I to come into this right relationship with God. And that's the incarnation. That's what Isaiah foretold. 
Now, there's been a, a word picture that's been done by a number of authors over centuries that pictures the, the, the Trinity standing together and looking and sometime in eternity past into the future and seeing a humanity broken by sin. And the Father, He comes up with a plan. A plan by which that sin can be paid for through a perfect sacrifice for all of humanity and that then through faith in that sacrifice we can come into a right relationship with Him. It's the Father's plan, we're told in Scripture. He turns to the Son and He says, Son, you're the only appropriate sacrifice that'll work. You have the purity of deity But in order to be a sacrifice for humankind, you must become a man. Because a human must die for humans. And so the incarnation is planned. And the Son agrees. And the Father and Son look at the Holy Spirit and say, you will be the one who will enable people to have faith. And when they have faith, you will indwell them as the presence of God and the mark of ownership. And the Trinity came together and agreed that because of their love and their determination to redeem, they would offer this opportunity to humankind. The Father's plan, the Son's sacrifice, the Holy Spirit's enabling. That's the incarnation. That's what Christmas is all about. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul writes, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with His pleasure and His will. So 700 years after Isaiah pens the words in 714, we come to Matthew chapter 1. And we'll close there this morning. Matthew chapter 1. Because that moment in time arrives. The moment in time arrives. Matthew chapter 1 in verse 18. It says, this is how the birth of Jesus the Messiah came about. His mother, Mary, was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit." She will give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sins. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Joseph is brought face to face with the mystery of the incarnation, and He is assured that this is indeed the work of God. Now, we cannot fault Joseph for having a struggle with this. (laughs) 
You know, he's not the first, and he cer- I mean, he is the first, but he certainly will not be the last to struggle with the idea of the virgin birth of Jesus. But it's essential that we understand there is no human father of this child that Mary is carrying. She is still a virgin. God himself is the father because it was necessary for Jesus Christ to be born without a sin nature. And Joseph is told, this child will save us from our sins. He is Jesus. Jehovah saves. Matthew then reveals to us that this is a fulfillment of Isaiah 7.14. And we're all the way back to where we started. A virgin will be with child. And he will be called Emmanuel. And then because he knows there's a few Greek readers, Gentile readers amongst those Jews that are reading the Gospel of Matthew, he explains, Emmanuel means God with us. Joseph exercises faith. And he takes his place in God's plan. Foundation of our faith is not a doctrinal statement. You're not a believer in Jesus Christ because you signed off on a doctrinal statement. It's not a moral code that we agree to live. Although the scripture gives us a moral code that reflects God that we're called to live. The foundation of our faith is a person. It's the person, Jesus Christ. It's the fact that he is Emmanuel. He is God with us. And that identity of Jesus is not up for discussion. It's not up for debate. And we must not accommodate to what the culture was comfortable with. He is who he is. He is Emmanuel. Fully God and eternal God and creator of this universe who in a moment in time took on humanity and was fully God and fully man at the same time. Through his death we receive forgiveness. Through his resurrection we receive eternal life. And it's ours to receive if we place saving faith in him. That's our faith. That's our faith. Ahaz reminds us that many in this world will choose to reject. They don't want God. They do not want God's help in their lives because they do not want to submit themselves to God. And that way they feel they are free to do life as they want. And God gives them that liberty. Although there will be the ultimate price to pay in judgment. So there's always going to be the Ahaz's. But there's also the Josephs. They are the ones who come to faith. And Joseph reminds us, sometimes faith takes time. Sometimes faith comes as we process our questions and we process things that we don't understand. But Joseph also reminds us that it is the Holy Spirit and as we have a sincere desire to seek the truth, God promises to reveal it to us. And the Holy Spirit is the one who will bring the understanding. And with that faith, we take our place in the family of God, adopted as a son or a daughter.
So take some time this week. Reflect on the significance of the mystery of the Incarnation. The wonder that we know Emmanuel. That God chose in a moment of time to take on full humanity so that he could be your Savior and you could be an adopted child. And be sure to reflect on the question, have I put saving faith in Jesus Christ? Is he the foundation of my faith? Or do I need to become a Joseph and stop being an Ahaz and come into that full relationship with him as my Lord and Savior? And if you know people who do not yet know Jesus, it's a good time of year to be praying for them to become a Joseph, a seeker of the truth who find Christ because the Holy Spirit will enable them to discover him. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we do pause and we thank you for Jesus. Lord, we acknowledge him in the fullness of who he is. He is Emmanuel. He is God. He's our creator. He's the giver of life. But he is also Jesus, taking on humanity that he might become our Savior. We thank you for the sacrifice of the cross. We thank you for the wonder and the power of the resurrection. And we pray that this would be a time of year that we would come to a fresh uh, level of appreciation and wonder that all of this even took place. All because you looked down upon us with eyes that loved us and with a determination to provide a way of redemption, even though it cost you the life of your own son. May we truly live with that heart of gratitude, heart of faith, and a heart of commitment that the world might be able to see through us the reality of what we've seen here this morning. And through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, may we be joined by many more right in this community who come to know Jesus Christ as our Savior. May you use us as you witness and salt and light. And we pray all this in the, pl- in the precious name of Jesus Christ. And together the people of God say, Amen. Amen. Would you please stand as we close?